joining me on the WBGO Journal is the godfather of funk, rock and roll Hall of Famer, Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award recipient, musician, singer, songwriter, band leader, and record producer, a true legend who is now also a visual artist, George Clinton. What an honor to speak to you today. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me here. Good to be here. I know that you just started doing this painting work during the pandemic, but Obviously, you're good at it. You've, you've worked with a lot of canvases. Tell us about that. Well, you know, I've been doing it for a few years, having people around like Olden Lord and Pedro Bell, who did, you know, P-Funk album covers. You have one thing about funk, you, if you're funking, you're going to have some style too. So with the costumes, with the props, the mothership, I got individual art a few years ago, just by doodling my uh, autographs. He was drawing a, a dog, atomic dog. And when this pandemic thing jumped off, I had a chance to, you know, to really do it. I saw one for $20,000. Wow. So I went out and bought every canvas I could find. <laughs> and I painted, 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 and then I started painting birdhouses. And I was on Anderson Cooper's show one time, painting the birdhouse, and it went crazy. So then I've been got an art manager, and along with the music, recapturing the songs from the copyright recapture, and the art is a whole new George Clinton around town. You know, why should we be surprised you're such an innovator and creative genius? And I love your shirt. I'm the life of the party. And I ain't even there. And I ain't and, even there. And you, you have been the life of the party for so many years. And now a huge party is happening at NJ Pack on Friday, March 18th. It's your birthday celebration, your 80th birthday. You're going to be joined by Questlove, Vernon Reen, Nona Hendricks. Tell us about that celebration. Oh, man, that's going to be that's going to be so I mean, I'm geeked, as they say, you know, I'm coming home. I'm. I, started Parliament in like the fifth, sixth grade at Avon Avenue School. I used to dream about Parliament being famous. You know, Frankie Lyman was the, the, the hit of the, that, you know, that year that we started it. And everybody had a group on every corner in Newark, Jersey City, New York, Brooklyn. That was it, do what was it. And I remember dreaming about Parliament being famous. I worked at the Hula Hoop Factory in Newark when they first came there. Just to buy uh, sweaters with a P on it that says Parliament. What The Hula Hoop Factory? Tell us a little bit more about that. What did you have oh, to do? When the Hula Hoop first, first came out, they first, on the East Coast, they came to Newark. We helped them unload the equipment. You know, me and my little street gang, you know, 15-year-old running around uh, Newark. We helped them unload the equipment, put it in the uh, factory on Badge Avenue, helped them uh, uh, hire people. And we did it so good. We got the little kids, you know, eight, nine, and 10, who had all the energy, because you had to bend a long strip of plastic into a circle and just have a cork in between. And uh, the old man would staple it. so. We got the kids who had fun doing that, paid them like a few dollars a week. <laughs> they, they was making money. We was making money. We hired people, helped them hire people, 
helped them pack it up and send it to Frankfurt, Germany when it was over. You know, when the fad was over, I mean, we had hula hoops everywhere. Fantastic. You know, during the pandemic, I, I heard you mention in a Rolling Stone interview that you had a chance to kind of refresh because you were kind of tired and the, the pandemic actually gave you, you know, new life and new juice to come back out and perform. What What's about it, this event at NJPAC? Well, that we tried to do it, I guess, last year, you know, and when the pandemic happened, we weren't able to get it going, you know, but when the pandemic happened, like I said, I had new life when everybody else was pinned down. The pain thing came in, you know, in handy. I realized, oh, I could do something I really like doing. And I got an art manager and we did shows. I started selling paintings. So I was really white geek. And then the, the pack thing jumped off again. So we've been um, organizing this along with the painting. So it's just been a, a happy period these last few months. It's such a happy period coming up too here in March because not only is there going to be the great concert, but you're being honored in various places. Avon Elementary School, near and dear to my heart because I taught some summer classes there through the Right On Sports Program. You're having a music room dedicated in your name. Wow. And then that there's also, me, go ahead, tell us about that. That made me, that made me feel so good, you know, that's where I started the group at, at Avon Avenue School. We used to practice in the boys' playground. Back then, it was a boys' playground and a girls' playground on each side of the building. We used to practice. That's where we started the thing. So I went by there a couple of years ago, and I met the principal that she was just out there. And I'm looking at the school, so she saw me admiring it and taking pictures. And I told her who I was, and she freaked out, introduced me to her husband, <laughs> who was a... a Omega, you know, Q dog. And, uh, and so we talked and said, we was going to come, we was going to do something. And I didn't know about this pack thing then, but now I'm glad to be coming there. And, oh man. And then not only that, they go out to Plainfield, they naming the, a street after the band. And that was like, that's going to be deep too. Both of those cities are like dear to my heart. So great. I know you're going to be donating equipment to the Avon Elementary School, and then you're talking about that's all happening on Thursday, March 17th, the street naming, too, in Plainfield. Take us back to Plainfield days. I took a bus, the 49 bus, every morning okay. to Plainfield. You know, I had a barbershop at that. I had I worked in two or three barbershops in Newark, Springfield Avenue, Jones Street, and Belmont Avenue. But in 60... I went out to Plainfield, New Jersey with a guy named Eddie King. And I was the only barber that knew how to do hair like that out there. Parliament was still sing a singing group. So we would actually have to go practice either Plainfield or North. And in the meantime, I put a band together of young kids. You know, the Boyce Brothers was the first band and then um, Eddie Hazel and Billy Nelson and Ty Ross was the second band member out of Plainfield. They was all 15 and under. And they actually learned to play with us as they grew older. And we went out to Motown. They came with us. And you got Parliament and Funkadelic. Funkadelic was from Plainfield. Bernie Worrell, who was a, 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 a child prodigy, you know. He's in a class by himself. I mean, he was 
at 15, 14, he was, you know, doing classical music. You know, he went off to Ju Juilliard and Berkeley. By the time we got a hit record, he came out of school, rejoined us, and everybody's like 18 by then, and there you had Funkadelic and Parliament on the road. I can't imagine what that barbershop sounded like. I would imagine the sounds that were coming out of that barbershop, because you had people coming in from all different, as you say, all different venues and all different genres of music mixing together. That must have been the most wonderful place to get a haircut. I mean, you'd be, when we was in Newark, we had people, you know, like the Gospel Clefts, you know, it was a gospel group who came by, the, you know, to get their hair done and, and they'd be in there and they hit harmony and it just blow you away. I delivered milk to Sir Vaughn on Avon Avenue, by the way. Is that I, right? I, I was 12 years old then. I used to deliver I'm in the, on the milk truck, hanging up, taking the bottle upstairs. Yeah. Did you have any conversations with her? No, I didn't know who she was. You know, <laughs> I, you know um, I remember the driver told us, this is the song and okay, I remember this. And then by, as you got older, wow, that's who that was. And then the barbershop. All stars, everybody came through the barbershop. You know, Jackie Wilson's, uh, Clyde McFadders, and you know, all the doo wop bands, the drifters. And the, there was a group from Newark called the Monotones who did sing Who Wrote the Book of Love. Love they that were song. like the they were like the first ones to get a hit out of the hood. Wow, that was such a great song. Growing up in Newark, now you worked in a record store too when you were a teenager, right? Yeah, Essex Records. And, and I, said, I had to clean up. And then they threw away the, the old records. They didn't return them back like they do like, you know, later on. Did. Then they throw them away. I take them to school. That's when I was going to Madison Avenue School. And I, I take them to school because, you know, it was like most of the white people live up there. So I take Elvis's records. Um, I forget the, the, all the doo-wop, you know, the doo-wop pop records. You know, I, I take them up there. Connie Francis. <laughs> wow. There's another one that was from Jersey at the same time. I want to jump ahead a little bit from the early days in Newark growing up to now, because Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg were the stars of the Super Bowl halftime show, along with some others. You've enjoyed working with Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg and the G-Funk sound and everything. You've just kept yourself so relevant. You can do anything, right? This music is I mean, inside you, George. <laughs> Thanks. But you know, when I looked up there and saw that stage, I I was so proud of, you know, because I actually, not only did they sample, I literally worked with Dre on Tupac's records, on Snoop's records, you know, and the whole Chronic album was like the mothership. Um, Eminem it was in Detroit. His, his producers and the one that found him I produced them, and you know, for, you know, they produced my son, the Bass Brothers. So I had everybody up there, you know, with the exception of Fifty Cent. I worked with personally, and it was like they was like so. I was so proud to see them all up there, doing the business side of it the way they do. Most of those people not only did had successful records, Snoop is like killing the business thing. Ice Cube is another one. I was so close with them 
that when Dre and them started, they was DJs and they was we let them use the word Uncle Jam Army before there was an NWA. <laughs> You know, and when I saw the movie, I, I remember, I had forgotten about it. Uncle Jim's Army was one of our albums. Yeah. You've been such an influence to so many. And, you know, they, they look at you with such reverence. So I'm sure that halftime show just brought everything together oh, for it, you. I mean, the, the one time when I saw Prince doing it, I felt the same way because we were like that. You know, and he was like, he inducted us in the Hall, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, what what do you remember most about your time, you know, with, with Prince? You know, we lost him at such such a an untimely time in his career, so young, oh, so talented. So talented and business-wise, to be in, in his build, you know, when he had Paisley Park, the building, going up there to see somebody successful in the music and all his artist stuff, to see him do so well in business. He got his masters back you know, to let everybody know everybody should get their masters back. That's the, way, that's the way he did it. That's the way he wanted it done. And he got his back. And to see the building, he had everything in there. Made the records. He even had a tailor in it that made him a fresh suit. <laughs> you know, he was just such a cool young kid. And everything about him was the funk. He wanted the funk. I didn't have to go up there and sit with him when he wanted to talk, you know, you know, I'm rock and roll. <laughs> so he said, no, come on up here. You got to talk. <laughs> what wonderful fashion both you and Prince have had through the years. I mean, it's part of who you are, this outlandish costumes that you have wear, but, but so cool. I mean, you just personify excitement and fun. We talked about being the life of the party for sure. Parliament Funkadelic Collective developing this influential and eclectic form of funk music. I love the story that you tell, but can you give us a, a quick synopsis of just how Parliament Funkadelic really started for you as far as how the sound, how you, you took it from doo-wop, from singing, and then it, it eventually it, it became a whole new genre. Well, starting with Parliament, like I said, it was about the singing. It was about the vocals. And then by the time we got to Motown, after we got a hit record, Testify. Don't you What was ending right around 60. Motown had peaked it in the middle of the 60s, you know, 67. It was beginning to peak. You started getting rock and roll from the 40s and 50s coming back out of Europe, you know, by way of Led Zeppelin, uh, Cream, and Jimi Hendrix, all of them. There was the blues being played real loud, but, you know, short way to put it. We realized that was happening. There was a group called the Vanilla Fudge who sang 
the Supreme song, You Keep Me Hanging On. We were on a show with them. And we didn't have any equipment to play on. We They let us use their equipment. And they had those Marshall amps, the kind that Jimmy played. We had never seen them in, you know, for real. And when we played, I want to testify over those amps. You realize this is what they used to get that rock and roll sound, Jimmy Hendrix. So we bought all the amps we could find in the hood. I mean, in the Manny's record shop in New York. Got Eddie new guitars and and I bought Jimmy Hendrix, Electric Ladyland, Are You Experienced, and uh, Axis Bowl is Love, Creamed Israelis Gears and Fresh Cream, Sly Stone, a whole new thing, and Dance to the Music. I bought those records and put Eddie in a room. And for the next six months, that's what we rehearsed. And from that, we got. Mama, what's a funkadelic? We started, we realized that that's funk music, real loud, almost churchy, was something that nobody was doing. They had rock and roll down and everything, but they didn't have that, you know, New Orleans, get out of my life, woman, you don't love me, no. They didn't have that nasty groove. We started doing that along with the Motown, mixing them together. And it became funk, funkadelic. Two years later, by the time we got to 70, Bootsy shows up. Bootsy Collins. You know, Bootsy Collins. Eddie and Billy stop working with Motown. They start doing shaky grounds with Temptation. You know, they was overbidding us. We couldn't afford to start giving them work there. So we got Bootsy for, and his brother. So when Bootsy came, he's used to horns. Sly was around, so they made us pay attention to horns, and James Brown was around. Bootsy brought Fred Wesley and Maceo Parker with him. Wow. So now you got James Brown sound, you got Funkadelic sound, Jimi Hendrix sound, and you got Motown. We call that P-Funk. That's pure funk. That's nothing but funk from every generation, every and we mixed that together. And we tried to put a little jazz edge on it. So that way you can get away with talking shit. You know, I can get on there and just talk like, you know, the Oscar Brown Jr. records, you know. Hey, daddy, what the dad, hey, that, you know. You started, you you able to get away with that. That's funky too. Jazz had a lot of funk in it, you know. So we was able to do that with Chocolate City, Make My Funk the P-Funk. We knew we had a funk thing that, was capable of being good music and commercial. And that became um, the Mothership Connection. And at that time, we let Bootsy be a Bootsy as opposed to a Funkadelic. We got him a band together and called it the Rubber Band. Gary Cooper and we got silly, serious music. He was able to do the song we would have done as Parliament. You know, the love songs coming out of the doo-wop thing. But he made it serious because he had a vibe like Jimi Hendrix. So we just made him Gadget Man. We got him all the toys he could stand, all the amps and bass. We had the bass made, had the, gla the glass. All that was part of his image we put together as a Bootsy. George, you know, when we hear you talk about, you have a great ear because you used all these influences and formed it into your own special form of music funk 
And the fact that so many people have used your music through the years, we've already talked about it too. Now, Questlove is going to be a part of this concert at NJ Pack coming up. What's your relationship with him? Um, he's one of those, um, with the historians, I call them DJ, um, like we used to be. That's what you had to be back in the day. You had to read Cashbox and Billboard. You had to be up on every, like you say, everybody's music, every style of music. You know, I was a songwriter at the Brill Building, so I learned to respect everybody. Like Barry Gordy said, you ain't got to like it. You know, you had to figure out what they did to make it work. You know, and so I pre learned to appreciate you know, I ain't married to no styles, you know, but Questlove, he's one of those young ones that could analyze us and had all the history. And I watched him and his, his dad was one of the, one of the doo-wop, famous doo-woppers, you know what I'm saying? So we talked about that and um, Nona Hendrix, I used to do her hair when they was, before they were LaBelle, they was Patty LaBelle and the Bluebells. I used to do her, 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 her and Patty and Nona. This ability to do great hair, where did that start from for you? That's a necessity when you was back in our day. You had to have your head laid, you had the hair done. So we did each other's hair. The man, you, you had to fry each other's hair, you know, straighten it and wave it. So you learn to do that. And you made lots of money. They made more money than anybody out of the hood next to a singer, they made probably some of them, the ones in New York and the ones that taught us made more than singers. You know, they was making thousand dollars a day because it wasn't but five dollars a head, seven dollars a head. So you had to do a lot of hair, but they were good and fast. But um, you learned to do it if you was in a band because you did each other's hair. Hmm. And but we thought we was the coolest people in the world. You know, you had Cadillacs parked out in front of the barbershop on Belmont Avenue where the Cadillac, three Cadillacs triple parked next to the fire department. They had to come and ask us to move the cars to, to let the truck out. That's how silly it was around there. Fantastic. We're speaking with George Clinton, the Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, Lifetime Achievement Award recipient for the Grammys. And he has had a career that has spanned five decades and more. When you think about Atomic Dog, if you perform it now, is it different than when you first started to do that song? Depending on where we're at, it's, it's going to be different no matter where we're at, but it's it, the intensity of it. If we're somewhere anywhere near the Q-Dogs, the Omegos, Omega, if we're anywhere near that, it's going to be real wild. But most places, even to kids, because, you know, it's in um, the Trolls movie, the, the Trolls movie, right, Anderson, right. Anderson Pack and myself, and um, yeah, so Atomic Dog is in all the hip hop has sampled it, so everybody know it from all the generations, and it's they told us it would never go gold. It ain't never stopped going gold. It's been going gold ever since they said that. There's gonna be a DJ dance party. Tell us about your dancing. Do you still like to? To move around, I mean, you know, well, you're, be, you're, you're going strong. You, I know you're feeling much better these days. So I feel good. I can point to the steps, but I, I ain't trying to jump around. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was back in the day. Like another thing about Newark when we first started the group, and you know, instead of gang fighting, they used to have dance-offs doing the mambo. I heard about the, that. 
Yes. That was the thing. That was the big thing. You know, I did, so young, I didn't even realize that, you know, there was another language. Tito Puente and, you know, Coco Seco and all those songs. Was, that that was in WNJR, number one on, I'm like, I didn't realize that wasn't us. But later on, we met Tito and the whole Mambo thing of, out of Havana was the thing in 57, 56, you know, and I made it my thing. I'm going to do that song one day. Matter of fact, I'm working with a group, now Seema Funk, that we plan on doing that. We've heard you talk about growing up in Newark, your time, you know, you spent at the barbershop in Plainfield. But the Brill Building in New York City is also a place that's near and dear to your heart. Can you tell people why? The Brill Building is for songwriters. I forget how many stories in this building, 20-some, 30-some stories. But there was room for song. Every famous songwriter you knew, Don Kirshner was in there, the Carol King and Gary Goffin, they were in the, the Motown, you know, Smokey Robinson. They were out in Detroit, but the whole company was in that building. And that's who I worked for. But everybody of every style of music was there. And you see people like Elvis would come out looking for songs. You see the Flamingos, they're looking for songs. Everybody needed a hit record, Frankie Lyman. And being there, you was around all the famous songwriters and all the famous artists come looking for music. That was where songwriting, Tin Pan Alley is what they called it. You know, so even when we got the mothership, I made sure that I land the mothership right in Times Square, but Roy Coins, that's right in front of the statue there. Let's have a little fun here. The mothership contains just five spots that you can go on the mothership and go anywhere you want, George. You can go back in time. You can go to the future. You can stay here current. So you and four other people get to be on the mothership. Who are you taking and why? Well, who am I taking and why? Wow. Let me see. I got to come up with a concept. Let me see. I'm just going to say, I'm off the top of my head, I'm going to take Slash Stone, Stevie Washington, Steve, Steve, Stevie Wonder, Prince, and Jimmy Hendrix. Wow. I'd love to be on, just to have a connection with that mothership and hear what, what would come out and of that, that's, right? And that's the reason why I would, I would like to hear what, was, what would happen. I don't know. I would like to hear what would happen. That's, that's a great answer, you know, to that question. Going strong. Of all the awards that you have won, George, is there one that means the most to you? You know, as somebody you being rock and roll, you thought you, you know, you didn't want to deal with awards and, and blah, blah, blah. That was the cool thing to do. But as you get close to 80, you've been around long to, to appreciate what it means, but you know, what is being said. Um, I don't know. I think that. Hip hop, I got a hip hop award back back in the nineties, um, and I didn't realize just how much I was partial to. I, I'm partial to that award, you know, and um, it, it's just um, for some reason that, that that has some kind of feeling. I have some kind of feeling. 
Uh, that says something about you because being a rock and roll hall of famer, lifetime achievement award Grammys, and it's the hip hop award that means the most to you. That's, that's very interesting, but it, it kind of tells the, the whole development of George Clinton through the years, just how relevant you are to this day. And we talk about a legacy. Wow. How about when you, you're living in Tallahassee right now. Is that where you're living? Yep. That's where I'm at. When you get to Newark, First thing that pops into your mind, is it Avon Elementary? What is it about Newark that's going to pop into your head and say, oh, yeah, I remember this? Anywhere I land, I mean, even at the airport, I mean, because it's done changed so much. And I used to actually play in all those places. You can't even walk nowhere near. You know, it's all fenced off and all. We used to travel through that as a kid you know, going from one place to the next, from the airport all the way to Week Wake Park. On a, I mean, I walked those places. You know, I was one of those people that just walked around singing to myself and stuff. So probably anywhere, you know, if, if I land on Prince Street, and you know, with the Stella Wright projects, that's going to be weird because all the tall buildings are gone and you can actually see from Bergen Street downtown. Mm. where you couldn't in the 60s, 70s, for all the high rises were there. I don't know what that looked like. And I'd probably get lost going down Spruce Street. And they changed the name on a couple of places. So I'm going to have fun. I did this, um, like I said, a year, a little over a year ago, just before the pandemic. I did that. Just went from one school with the, what was called Southside is Shabazz now, what was called Clint Places uh, University. I went to all of them and did what you're talking about. Matter of fact, took pictures and stuff. But I can go through alleys between houses for miles. <laughs> I know the city like that. Is there anything that you want to talk about your music, your career that we haven't touched upon today? You know, it's so vast. We could talk for hours. But the fact that, you know, um, after doing all that music, like most artists, a lot of people lose the ownership to the music. We've been lucky enough to actually get it back, copyright recaptures um, in the courts. Uh, myself, along with um, the lawyers, and Ben Crump, who's a, um, a fraternity frat brother of mine in Tallahassee here, is, we're working together on um, um, copyright recaptures for your heirs. You know, that's the main thing, to get this stuff belong to your heirs. You can't sell it. They can't take it from you. People don't know that. So, that's our main thing is to get people to know and understand that they own that music, no matter what people tell them, what they think they sold it. You know, if they can get the copyright recapture, you can get it back. And, and I so, imagine it, was, it wasn't an easy battle, was it? Oh, no. I spent millions fighting for it. Yeah. Millions. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And then at the same time, in the end, you stay with it, you'll get it back. It's hard to find lawyers that, that'll work. You know, they're scared. They can't get no business. But in this day and time, you can get it back. And like I say, Ben is on the road anyway. So we, we're doing pretty good. Well, he is a part of Newark's wonderful, vast history. And he's coming back for a special celebration. George Clinton celebrates 80th birthday celebration with music, a room dedication, a street naming after him in Plainfield. It's all happening in uh, the mid-March, Friday, March 18th at 8 p.m. at NJ Pack. 
It's New Jersey's own George Clinton's 80th birthday bash featuring George, Questlove, Vernon Reed, and Nona Hendricks. There's an after party after the concert. And then the day before that, there will be the street naming in Plainfield and then at Avon Elementary School in Newark, where it all started for George Clinton. There will be a music room named in his honor. It is an honor for me to have a chance to speak to the wonderful George Clinton. Thanks so much for joining us on the WBG. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it, George. Thank you. Yeah. Funky dogs. Nasty dogs. Oh.